right, I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And when you found that text, I'd like you to also look at Nehemiah chapter 13 in the Old Testament. Uh, tonight, as we know, is our observance of the Lord's Supper, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and it's a privilege that we look forward to in every quarter of the year. And due to our visiting speakers that we've had for the past couple of weeks, we uh, were not able to have our observance at the beginning of this month, and so we pushed it back a little bit. But I didn't push this back because the Lord's Supper is not important. It is very important for us. So it's not because uh, we felt like it's something you could just move around and do any time that you want to do it. But rather, I thought it's important for us to focus all of our attention to have a service when we think about this in particular. And so uh, I wanted to just push it back a little bit in order that we could have this time together as a church. Now, this evening, I'd like for us to look at two passages of Scripture. The first one is the familiar text that you know in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is where Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church about the proper observance of the supper. And as you know, Paul had to uh, reprimand them. He had to teach them properly concerning it because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And then the second text that we're going to look at is in Nehemiah chapter 13. And you may think, well, what in the world does Nehemiah have to do with the Lord's Supper? And I hope in just a few minutes you'll understand why that I've put these two particular texts together for the message tonight. Now, if you'll notice uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll begin reading in verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. I want to concentrate on verses 28 and 29. Paul says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that cup and drink, or eat of that bread, rather, and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, if you happen to be reading from a different version of Scripture tonight, other than the King James, your Bible has probably taken out the gender-specific word man in verse number 28 and replaced that with person. For example, in the English Standard Version, it says, let a person examine himself, which is probably really helpful since they take out man, they take out the masculine noun so that we understand that Paul is speaking to both men and women but you notice that they leave in the masculine pronoun himself that refers to the noun. Let a person examine himself. And so I suppose that we're left to wonder here why man could not have been logically understood to refer to both sexes where himself seems to be self-evident. That's the mystery of trying to fix something that doesn't need to be fixed. 
Well, that's not my subject tonight. I'm just throwing that in a little bit for you there. But I want you to notice that Paul says here that before taking the supper that we are to examine ourselves and we are to make sure that we do not eat unworthily. We are to judge ourselves. And if we don't, he says, you drink damnation to yourselves. So the time of the supper is a time to judge your holiness. William MacDonald writes on this verse, uh, uh, verse 29, he says, to eat and to drink in an inconsistent manner is to eat and drink judgment to oneself, not discerning the Lord's body. We should realize that the Lord's body was given in order that our sins might be put away. If we go on living in sin, while at the same time partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are living a lie. And of course, Paul wrote these particular verses because of those abuses of the supper, because of the condition of the Corinthian people. They were sinful, they were divisive, they were dishonoring the Lord's death. They were just terribly abusing this beautiful picture that Christ gave us concerning his death. Now, I'd like you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 11 now. And from this chapter, I'd like for us to draw some parallels to Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And here in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah checked the sins of Israel. He checked their holiness. And he looked at some of the very same areas that I believe that we need to look at in our church this evening, our church right now, to see if we are judging ourselves properly before we partake of the supper. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter of of Nehemiah 13. Uh, We're going to take a little bit as we go here. But let me set the stage for you. The timing of this passage is just a little bit over 400 years before Christ came, and it's about 150 years after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. The walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. The city was in a deplorable state, and the remnant of the Jews that were left there, ones that were not taken into captivity, were very poor, in a very poor state, and they had been unable to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, to make the 13 chapters of Nehemiah short story for you, Nehemiah was a Jew that was living in the Medo-Persian Empire. They were the successors to the Babylonians, and Nehemiah had a very important, influential job in the Medo-Persian Empire. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now, that meant that he was the king's confidant. And when he learned about these terrible conditions that were in Jerusalem, that the walls of the city had not been repaired, he asked the king if he could have permission to go back to Jerusalem or go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls of the city. And Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, and he was able to accomplish the building of the walls in a mere 52 days, a miraculous 52 days considering all the opposition that he faced and even facing opposition from his own people. And while Nehemiah was there in Jerusalem, he participated in a revival of the people, and the people were drawn closer to the Lord. Well, shortly after they had repaired the walls uh, and after that revival, Nehemiah went back to Persia and stayed there for a while, probably for about a year or a little bit more, and then he came back to Jerusalem. And when he came back, this, this revival that had taken place was no longer there, that the people were back to their old ways and doing the same things that they were before, and so Nehemiah lit into them 
that's what a southern Jew does. He, he lit into them. He lit into them. And so he started correcting the, the problems. And he found these people in disarray. So he started to straighten them back up again. And I thought about that. I thought about how this compares to what the Apostle Paul had to do with the Corinthian church. If you remember in the book of Acts that Paul began the Corinthian church, he uh, stayed there for a period of 18 months, teaching them the doctrines of the church. And when he left there, that church was on good, solid footing. They had the doctrines of the apostles. They had the apostle himself who taught them the great doctrines of the faith. And so they were strong when he left. But after a period of time, things started to break down, and the people started to fall into problems. And so Paul wrote this letter of 1 Corinthians to correct them. And this is why we find him in the 11th chapter reprimanding them for their observance of the Lord's Supper. Well, going back to the book of Nehemiah, I think that we can find in that 13th chapter some attitudes that needed to be changed in Jerusalem. And there are attitudes that I think that we need to be careful of and to watch out for in our church. And all of these different attitudes have to do with our holiness. Now, I'd like for us to look, first of all, at our associations, that we are to keep our associations or to keep our friendships holy. Nehemiah 13, starting in verse number 1, it says, On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing." Now it came to pass when they heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Now you see what had happened was the people in Jerusalem had begun to make friends with people that God said that they were to separate themselves from. Hundreds of years before this, the Ammonites and the Moabites were enemies of God's people. It was Moab that refused to let Israel pass through their land when they were on the way to Canaan. And, of course, that was the time of the Exodus. And instead of Israel being able to go through Moab, which would have been the shortest way to get to Canaan, Moab refused to let them pass through, and so Israel had to go around the other side of them, take a longer route. But it was even worse than that because not only did they refuse to accommodate Israel and to let them come through and to have some water and whatever they needed to get through the land, but they, they tried to hire a prophet to put a curse on them. I don't have time to go into the story of Balaam tonight, that prophet that the Moabites tried to hire, but they hired him to put a curse on Israel. The Moabite king knew that he could not uh, fight against Israel. He was powerless against the God of Israel. So he thought that if he could have a prophet put a curse on them, that that would be the answer to his problems. Well, God remembered that. For hundreds of years, God remembered that. And God passed a law that said that Israel was never to have any association with Ammonites or Moabites. And if you check out the beginning of those two nations, they began by an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his two daughters. So these are two countries, two, two nations that from the very beginning was bad. So here's the point of this, that God wants his people, he wants his people and the world's people to stay apart from one another. We cannot mix. Jesus taught that in the New Testament, in our study of Matthew. He said that we need to watch our associations because the world hates God. And he said because they hate God and because they hate him, they're going to hate you as well. And we might not think so. 
We might not think that, that unbelievers are, will harm us, but we're not to mix with, with unbelievers because light and darkness don't dwell together. God said that he would not fellowship with us if we fellowship with them. Now, there's some people that really get tripped up on secondary associations, but it seems that God is very interested in our secondary associations. The prophet Amos said, Can two walk together except they be agreed? And Amos meant that God's people cannot walk with him unless they're in friendship and in fellowship with him. The apostle James wrote, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And I'll apologize to you for just a moment. That wasn't the Apostle James. That was James that wrote that, not the Apostle James. But, of course, uh, we all know as well Paul's classic passage that he wrote in 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, when he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And God is telling us that we can't walk with the world and still walk with God. That's because God's people are like oil and water with the world. We don't mix. And whenever you try to align yourself with unbelievers, you'll find that you'll harm yourself rather than helping them. And of course, we understand that there is a time that we are to build relationships with unbelievers. And that's, that time is when you're uh, attempting to win them to the Lord. You may want to build a relationship with them at that time, but not for any other purposes. Just as we see here in Nehemiah and we see in 2 Corinthians and in James, a friendship with the world on any other basis will damage our fellowship with God. Now, there was another problem that Nehemiah found when he returned. Verse number 4 says, And before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priest. Secondly, we need to look at purification, and that is that we are to keep God's house holy. Now, when Nehemiah was gone, the high priest Eliashib made a pact with an Ammonite named Tobiah. And he had allowed Tobiah to come into the temple and to actually live in a room in the temple. When Nehemiah was rebuilding the city wall, it just happened that Tobiah was one of the chief enemies. He was the one, that, one of the ones that tried to keep Nehemiah from completing the wall. But when Nehemiah was gone, the high priest overlooked that. And because of some unholy friendships and because of some unholy marriages, Tobiah was living in the holy temple of God. Now, I don't need to remind you, I don't think, that even Israelites, the people of God, if they didn't have priestly functions, they weren't allowed to go into certain areas of the temple. But here you have a Gentile, and worse, a Gentile from a nation that was specifically forbidden to come into any part of the camp of Israel, who's now living in God's temple. And he was in the place where the tithes and offerings were kept, the grain offerings for the uh, grain for the meal offerings, and the vessels that held the incense had been in this room where Tobiah was living. But all of that had been cleaned out, and this heathen was there in the temple. So Nehemiah responded to that by cleansing the temple. Verse number seven. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of all the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore 
Therefore, I cast forth all of the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I the vessels of the house of God with the meat offerings and the frankincense. Well, Nehemiah recognized that God's house is holy. Now, he didn't care about whether he offended anyone. He just gathered up all of the stuff that was there, and he threw it out into the street. And do you remember that Jesus cleansed the temple on two occasions? One of them is in John chapter 2, where it says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Jesus saw all that was going on in the temple, things that should not be going on there. And so he drove those people out and the temple was cleansed. And that's to tell us that God's temple is a holy place. And there were very strict rules about who could be there and about the kinds of activities that go on. Well, I realize that when we talk about our church, that we're not talking about the same kind of restrictions that they put on the temple. The church is the people of God. The Holy Spirit indwells his people. That is the church of God. And we don't have the Spirit dwelling in a place like the Holy of Holies like they did in the temple. But I think there is something that we do need to understand about this place, the place that God has given us to come and worship him, and that is that we ought to consider the sanctity of the place that God gives us for worship. And I know... I'm going to step on a few people's toes tonight, but I want to tell you something, that eating and drinking during worship services is not something that you ought to be doing. I spoke with someone the other day that told me, I, told me this. I, they said I was sitting in the back, and it was really distracting to me to see all the stuff that was going on in front of me in the church. People talking back and forth, busy about doing other things while the sermon is being preached, and then people lifting up their water bottles and and taking a drink. Could we not get through a service without doing that? I mean, do we really have to, in a 40-minute sermon, get up and leave here and go to the bathroom and destroy somebody's concentration when they're trying to listen to the Word of God? Why can't we just sit still for a little bit of time and listen to the message? teenagers and others, you don't need to go out. You don't need to go out of the service unless it's an absolute necessity. And I want to remind you of something that Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 22. He said, what have ye not houses to eat and drink in? And I don't want to take the meaning of that verse out of its context, so I'm going to keep it in its context and tell you what Paul was talking about. It's sort of like this. He was telling the people, if you want to eat and drink in the service then bring enough for everybody. Why should you have water and the person next to you doesn't? Now, this is actually what was going on in the Corinthian church. They weren't sharing. And so he made a point of this. Why should you have something that other people don't have? And so if you have a Starbucks, why didn't you bring enough for everybody? And if you want to eat popcorn in the service, why can't we all have popcorn? Or whatever else that you do in the service, why can't we all have some of that? Now, do you see a problem that would develop if every member of the church did that? 
If everybody brought their water to church and everybody brought their popcorn to church and everybody brought this and their, and their Cokes and their, and their uh, coffee cups and all of that and sat in the church, it would be hugely distracting for people to watch all of that kind of thing going on. So I think that we need to be reminded of this, that we're not at a ball game and we're not here for entertainment. We're here to listen to the word of God and we can respect the place that we're in. And I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you this, that, that uh, because you drank a, a drink of water in the church that somehow you're unholy. I don't mean that at all. But what I mean is let's pay attention and let's just consider what would happen if everybody did the same thing that you're doing in the service. And I think some of you would have to say that would be a pretty disruptive service. Probably no one would be able to listen. So we don't need to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the service. You don't have to go get a drink of water. you got time to do that before the service. got time to go to the bathroom and all of that. Now, I know that somebody's going to say, well, Pastor Smith, you are a hypocrite because you got that water sitting there on that table. And I would tell you, when you're ready to preach, come up here and you can have a drink, all right? So we need to think about what we do here. And I know you may think that I'm mean, but I think there's some things we kind of need to get under control. And it has to do a lot, too, with with kids, the way they act in the church building and when they're in this room especially. Uh, We've talked about this before, but because we have a school here and we've used this room for um, other activities, that you have kids that think, well, you come into this area, it's the play area. Oh, this, this is the place where God's word is preached. When we set up for services, let's keep God's house holy. Let's be a little bit reverent about what we do. And uh, I think that we'd be a lot better off. Now, I'm going to take a shot at you in another way here tonight as well. So I'm getting you mad. I might as well get you all the way there. Um, the third thing that I want to talk about is restoration. And that is to keep the tithe holy. Nehemiah found another problem with the people. And that was the neglect of tithing. And you may not know this, but refusing to tithe was one of the huge issues that caused God's judgment upon his people. Now, earlier in the 10th chapter, before Nehemiah left, the people promised that they would restore their tithes. See, the tithes had been neglected, and the Levites that were supported by the tithes were not able to do the service of the temple because they were starved out. People weren't bringing in the tithes. They were supposed to be supported by those. And so when Nehemiah came, he found that all the Levites weren't serving in the temple. Instead, they were working out in the fields trying to make a living. And so Nehemiah came, and and, uh, the people got into that revival that I talked about a moment ago, and they agreed that they would start tithing again. But during that absence, that year of absence when Nehemiah's away, the people stopped tithing. So I suppose this is why Eliashib was able to clean out the storehouse because there wasn't anything to put in there anyway. So Tobiah could live in there because the people hadn't been bringing the tithes and the offerings and the grain and everything that they were supposed to bring. Now I want you to notice verse number 10 in Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah says, And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his own field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place, then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil under the treasuries. Now, I want to be brief here for time's sake, not for importance sake, but the tithes and offerings are what allows the work of the church to go on. 
Now, I know that we are struggling with financial issues in the church. Some of that is because people have lost jobs, a uh, uh, product of a down economy. Some of it's because our, some of our people have left to go to other places in order to find jobs. But we do need to remember this, that God commands the tithe. He says that is the way that the church is supposed to operate. He commands it for the support of the ministers. He commands it for the work of the Lord to be done in this place. And he also commands it because it is an act of faith. Tithing proves that you trust God. In fact, it's the only area of service where God said, you can trust me on this, you can try me on this. It's the only area of service where God tells us we try him instead of him trying us. God says in Malachi chapter 3, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. There are many preachers who take that verse, and they say that what God is telling you here is that he will make you rich. That if you give enough, he'll make you rich. Well, the only person that gets rich in that scheme is the preacher. But that doesn't change the fact that we are to bring our tithes and offerings. If you want to be blessed by God, then you have to be faithful to him. You have to obey him. And when you do obey him, when you bring your tithes and offerings, the return that God gives you may not be monetary at all. Instead, it might be the blessing of contentment to live in the circumstances in which you're in. God can teach you how to be happy in whatever state that you're in. And so God may just bring you that kind of a blessing. But whichever it is, understand that giving is an act of faith. And not to give all that God requires is to say, I do not believe that if I put God to the test, that he'll do what he says. So maybe there are some who need to restore their tithes. And maybe some of you need to start from scratch because you don't have anything to restore. You never tithe in the first place. And that could be the reason why people are worried all of the time. They never can find any peace in their circumstances because they haven't obeyed God. So you see, if you come into the supper and you're, you're knowingly in the middle of these kinds of sins, this is the very kind of thing that Paul is talking about when he says that we eat unworthily. And if you continue to do that, you especially eat one unworthily if you listen to the warnings that have been given and you don't do anything about it. So Nehemiah made them restore their tithes. And you can read more about that in the 10th chapter of Nehemiah, verses 32 to 39. Now the fourth area that we need to look at is consecration. And that is to keep God's day holy. Verse number 15 says, In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought unto Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sowed victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? So Nehemiah said, Here is another problem that I saw. The people are going about their business on the Sabbath day just like it's any other day of the week. They were buying and they were selling in the city of Jerusalem. He said, I even saw these men of Tyre. 
Tyre was a wicked city, a Gentile city. I even saw men of Tyre that had come in and set up their flea markets in town. See, we live in a time when churches have abandoned teachings about the Sabbath. You know, it used to be that if somebody said that they were a Christian, they believed that Sunday was the Christian Sabbath. Christian, or Sabbath rather, simply means rest. It means to, to, means to cease from work. And our statement of faith still reflects that old-time belief in a Christian Sabbath. But most churches have abandoned that. Most uh, churches don't believe that there is any such thing as a Christian Sabbath any longer. And so what they do is they desire to make worship services convenient. And so they change Sunday morning to Saturday night. Or they change it to Friday night. And that's so people won't be bothered by church. Then you can get church out of the way. And then you can go about your busy weekend, whatever it is you want to do. But you know what happens when you do that? You're teaching people that being a Christian is not really about serving God and his purposes, but being a Christian is serving or seeing how that we can fit God into our schedules. Let's just see if we can have a little bit of time to fit God in. And how many times have you heard preachers say this? Make some time for God. Make some time for God. That's, the totally, that's a totally the wrong attitude. God is the one who allows us time, not the other way around. Sunday is God's time. Sunday is his day. God has allowed you to have six other days. And what God could have done, he said, I want them too. You give me all of them. You, you worship me every single day of the week. And since we do do that, but he sets aside one special day of the week and says, this is the time that you are to reserve for me. This is the time to rest from your labors. This is the time to come to worship together as the body of Christ. Now, what God does, he, he has his own economy, and he knows that, that uh, it, this is the best way to figure things out, that his work is best served by giving us some time. God gives us some time. It's not that we give God time. And I hope that you understand that. Don't take God's day to do your stuff. Keep God's day holy. Now, lastly, fifthly, is separation, and that is keep your family holy. Verse number 23. In those days also I saw Jews, saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. Now look at verse number 24 again. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. You see, the breakdown of alliances, of holy alliances, caused that the children of Israel could no longer speak in the Jews' language. They were mixing it up with the people of the world and the things of the world. Now, let me spiritualize that for you. In our society today, among Christians, there is so much little, or so little I should say, about God, so little concern about prayer in the home, so little Bible reading that children grow up knowing nothing at all about God. They don't speak God's language. There are parents in our church that can go all week long and never pray before a meal. They might not ever mention God in the home. They don't bring their kids to Sunday school. They don't bring them to the Pioneer Club simply because they don't care. But their kids can speak TV. 
and their kids can speak video games, and their kids can speak the philosophy of their godless schools, but they don't know how to speak the language of Jesus. You know, I thank God that I was raised in a Christian home, but today we have Christians without Christian homes. And you can't say that you have a Christian home if Christ is not in your home. And what happens here is that some of you, some of you even here tonight, may lose your kids to the world because you don't have Christ in your home. And some of you will be sorry, or there may be members of the church that aren't here tonight, that they're going to be sorry that they replaced a good, solid church with other things that they let other things come in and take the time when children should be in church. And so they let recreation and jobs and getting a little bit ahead in uh, in material things, whatever it might be, they let those things substitute for the place, the house of God. And you can make all the excuses that you want to do that, but you're not going to be backed up by the Word of God. You simply aren't. It's an excuse is all that it is. Nehemiah said, they can't speak in the Jews' language any longer. And our children can no longer speak in the Lord's language. And folks, if you don't talk the Lord's language at home, don't expect that your kids are going to speak it either. And while I'm on the subject of language tonight, do some of you know what your kids are doing on the Internet? Do you know what they're doing on Facebook and their social networking? Do you know what they're writing about? Do you know what they're saying? Do you know who their friends are? I think some of our parents do know about this, and they let it go on. And they have their own Facebook pages, and they can read the stuff that's going on, and they're putting out some of the stuff themselves. Can you read what your children are saying? And the answer to that is yes. Thumbs up on your page. I hear what they're saying. I know exactly what they're doing. Shame on you. And shame on you if you participate in any of that. You see, Nehemiah had to go back to Jerusalem and straighten some things out. Now, what we have to do is keep our families holy, keep the Bible in our homes, keep uh, the church in our kids' lives. Let, let our kids know and let's practice this. Let's be in God's house in order to worship the Lord. So Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem to straighten some things out. And this is what Paul did with the Corinthian church. Paul went back there to tune them up some. They got slack in their service. They, they let some things go. And so Paul had to deal with them in these certain areas to get some holiness back into their worship. Now, let me sum this up a little before we observe the supper tonight. I mean, there's a lot that can be said about this. We can spend a lot of time on it. But I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 11 in the last part of the 29th verse where Paul says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Not discerning the Lord's body. What does that mean? What does he mean, not discerning the Lord's body? Well, if you come to the supper without holiness, if you've not considered the the areas of your life that need to be right with God, then what Paul is saying here, it is an insult to the death of Christ. It is to mock the death of Christ if you continue in sin, if you continually dishonor Christ while partaking of the Lord's Supper. See, this is very serious business. Just a moment, we're going to sing the power of the cross. And that's become sort of a theme song for our observance of the Lord's Supper. And that's a song about Christ's death. And I don't know how that any of us could could stand here and sing a song like the power of the cross and understand what Christ did when he died for us. How in the world could we be guilty of insulting the blood of the cross? How can we mock, mock his death with the lives that we live and still sing that song? 
we need to consider it very carefully. What we need to do is to confess our sins. We need to take the challenge that Paul put before the Corinthian church and Nehemiah put before the Israelites in Jerusalem. Take a challenge here to judge your holiness. Think about your holiness. What kind of life are you living? And then think about, are you worthy in that sense to take the Lord's Supper? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence tonight, and we do confess our sinfulness. We confess our unworthiness. We know that we have let things uh, become lax, the uh, different things that we ought to be doing for you and, and the way that we ought to live, that we've just become lax in our lives and we haven't thought about how holy that we need to be. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to hearts of people tonight and help them to understand that uh, to come to the Lord's Supper without a holy heart, without sins being confessed, without a real determination that we're going to serve Christ is to mock the very thing that we're doing. We mock the Lord's body. We mock the blood that was shed on the cross if we continue to live in sin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to uh, confess those sins, help us to be the kind of church, the kind of people that you would have us to be. Speak to our hearts now, Lord, even as we sing this song, The Power of the Cross. And Lord, help us to give ourselves wholly to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing, please. To see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road. 